What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. This is Squawk Pod. I'm CNBC producer Katie Kramer. Today on our podcast. Exactly one year after U.S. markets tanked on fears of the coronavirus pandemic, what a difference a year makes. You know, life is short and business is boring, so what the hell? Airlines are hopeful for bluer skies ahead. All engines are go for United CEO Scott Kirby. We're clearly on the upswing. And as more and more people are getting vaccinated, particularly leisure demand is coming back and coming back at almost 100%. And the art world going digital. Sotheby's CEO on auctioning NFTs. I don't think this is going to completely replace the physical art world. What's probably most exciting about NFTs for me is that it's a new aesthetic. It's a very new and very engaged audience. All that today, plus what will reopening mean for your job? Some talk of a four-day work week. Let's get that going. It's Tuesday, March 16th, 2021. Squawk Pod begins right now. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Squawk Box here on CNBC. I'm Becky Quick, along with Joe Kernan and Andrew Ross Sorkin. And Joe, I wasn't paying attention to anything you said until I heard the words four-day work week. What? And, what? And then I think, do you really get that much more done on that fourth day? And is three that much different than four? I, I mean, really? If when, when, when it comes right down to it? <laughs> What if we yes, yes, offered yes. to work anyway, another hour? Anyway, you got hour, my attention. Another hour a day, but do three days. Yeah, probably not going to work. Probably the not going to work. Exchange but let's start never, with the markets. The no. markets are open five days, so I think yeah. we need to be here for those days right. too. In fact, we are going to start with the markets after the Dow jumped 174 points to close at a record high. The S&P also closed at a new high, and the Nasdaq actually outperformed yesterday just in terms of the percentage gains. It was up by just over 1% versus up by 0.6% for the S&P and half a percent for the Dow. It clawed back some of its recent losses and closed at its highest level in two weeks. Um, Yeah, in two weeks versus all-time highs for both the Dow and the S&P 500. The Dow, by the way, has now been up for seven sessions in a row, and that's the longest winning streak it's seen since all the way back to August. Here's a look at the Squawk stack and wondering this morning any changes that anybody would like to make. The floor is open, but for now we've got the Dow futures, the NASDAQ 100 futures, the 10-year Bitcoin and GameStop. Not a whole heck of a lot of movement on any of them. Tesla. Tesla for GameStop. What's it doing this morning? Nothing. Just the rest of the world is waking up to that that was an actual title change that went into an actual (laughs) regulatory filing. And it's just so bonkers that weird uh, <laughs> that we're not done talking about it i mean i like it, it Tech, right. no king right and, and, and who's so gonna with my get, emphasis you know, on take, the no take i'm gonna take the company public on pot day okay i'm right. gonna uh <laughs> you know it's just but and then it's worked for him hard to so argue they, with it and master of coin I mean, it is called Bitcoin, and they did decide to start buying. So it's just, but the whole game of. But did you did you see though? Did you see that he the, the best 
tweeting back and forth about his NFT that he's selling, and then Beeple saying yes, that he's happy to buy it for sixty-nine Beeple. million. Uh, that was the best. Yeah, but then it, did you see his response? He said uh, Elon yes, Musk's response to in, that. In said, Doge no, no, coin. 420 Dogecoin. 420, yep. by the way. Get it? 420? Back to yep. it. Mm-hmm. You know, life is short, and, you know, business is boring, so what the hell, right? <laughs> you might as well <laughs> just do what so you So what would you like really, your title to be? What shall we refer that's to a you good, as? That's a, uh, yeah, I, let me think about that. You I've had think titles. about these. Yeah. I've had titles before. Oh, the Kahuna. The Kuna, Kahuna, got married, and, um, but, you know, and I never, Haynes never gave me the big title, though, and people miss, you know, it's, they call it, they mistake it for Big Kahuna, and I was never the Big Kahuna, even when I had a son and a daughter, I still was only the Kahuna, so I never got beyond that. That's okay. That's so okay. So you would like a, to now be called the Big Kahuna? That's the upgrade you're looking for? Oh, if you guys, you know, think it's appropriate, I don't know. Um, it's up, it's, we... we <laughs> No, I love no. it when you call me. No, I got to think about button. it. I got to think about it. I want, I want something more uh, that, that, that illustrates my tech savvy a little bit more. You know what I mean? I want something that, that really delves into, you know, that, that, that I'm on MySpace Blood now, I? for example, right. that I finally got oh, on. What do they call, Joe, Joe, what do they call you on Twitter? Oh, man. We, yeah, we can't use those. Uh, <laughs> remember what you told me yesterday? We had our, a personal phone call. Andrew was minding his own business. <laughs> You were minding your own business over the weekend, and you looked at your Twitter account, and someone just out of the blue said, Andrew, you're a turd, right? And it's true. Just, yeah. it's true. So it's a wonderful place. On any given day, place. you can just that look is, at the, is the what, Twitter. Let's see what people are saying about me today. You're a turd. Uh, all right. Thank you, sir. Thanks. Good way to wake up. On. And then I told him I liked it, and he got mad. That it, but it was, it was funny. It was and, and I, I should have re- I should have retwe- I should not have retweeted it. I should not have retweeted it. But, Maybe uh, we should move on. This drug news, new yeah, headlines every day. Clots and and hard to you know cause and effect AstraZeneca and specifically this vaccine. A new uh, Reuters report says results of that company's vaccine trial are being reviewed by independent monitors. Uh, an emergency authorization could come within a month. Uh, and if the results are positive and it's deemed safe and effective, the FDA would review the data and issue the authorization. The vaccine was approved in Europe, but that's like the lead story. A lot of places uh, today, a growing number of European countries have suspended it over concern about blood clots. Most recently, uh, Germany, France, Italy and Spain. AstraZeneca said there's been 37 reports of blood clots Get this out of more than 17 million people vaccinated in the EU and Britain, said there's no evidence that the vaccine carries an increased risk of clots. I, I mean, I'm trying to connect the dots of how you'd get there from, from a, you know, you get an immune response. And I, I, I you know, it, it's so, we're not doctors, and we'll talk to maybe Scott Gottlieb about this, but just to try to see the, the actual pathology of how the, the uh, the vaccine somehow leads to a, a, more of a, a chance for a blood. Obviously not a great chance, 37 out of 17 million, but is there some increase at all, even if it's, you know, you need a lot of decimal points to, to see what the, the probability is. It's troubling, and there, there have been, you've read some of the anecdotal reports about, uh, you know, young people, a young woman that, that 
where was she? It was over in a European country after the second shot, I think, or I think it was after the second shot, died in four days. But people die. People die. And so it's just, you know, it's just hard to understand, uh, you know, whether there is any, uh, any connection. But here we are talking about bringing it here. So I don't know. Yeah, it's it, look, it's been such a concerning story to watch fall out, particularly because Europe has already been behind in their vaccination schedule and behind where other nations, including the United States, have been in terms of getting that rolled out. They've seen a, a spike in cases of covid as a result. They had already been fighting with AstraZeneca pretty publicly about not allowing them to ship um ship vaccines to Australia and other places that, that just in terms of how quickly they were able to get their own supply. Um, so it looks like a bad outturn and it's distressing to see, particularly when they have fallen so far behind on their vaccinations. And when there's already anti-vax sentiment that, that rears its yes. head and, and I see it on Twitter too. I see some wacky stuff that, you know, that I have a, I see a thread with 54 comments on it. And it's like, who, how did I get on this thing? And, and it's all about conspiracies and drug company profits it would, and crazy. It would and be nice like to see happens. a very rapid response from the regulators based on advice from doctors and not politicians getting involved with this. I would like to hear what the doctors have to say. And I'd like to hear that very right. quickly. Pretty detailed safety profiles on on a lot of these. It was fast. It was the fastest it's ever been to get these, but still big numbers of people that, that uh, it was tested on that, that you Tens would have Tens of think, thousands. That, yeah, right. that you would have thought that you'd see more. Well, it would be statistically uh, demonstrable that there was something going on. One of the stories that we've been talking about is Moderna. It's in the top five movers in the S&P this morning after the company says that it's begun mid to late stage studies testing its COVID-19 vaccine in children between the ages of six months and 11 years. That study will test the safety and effectiveness of a two-dose regimen with shots given four weeks apart. Moderna is hoping to enroll just under 7,000 kids for that study. And by the way, if you're interested, if you'd like to look into it, they're trying to sign kids up at this uh, website, www.kidcovestudy, kidcovestudy.com. They say the faster they sign up kids, the more quickly that this can get approved. Think about it. This is actually, this is a step forward. Pretty good idea. Tinder, Tinder, another match group dating apps will soon let users uh, run background checks on possible dates. The company used Garbo, a nonprofit that would allow people to run a background check using a person's full name or a first name and a phone number. The checks would reveal if a potential date uh, had an arrest record or a history of violence. Garbo has said it will focus on violence. It won't make drug possession or traffic charges public. It's not clear uh, how much the service will cost uh, Tinder users, but we've all seen enough datelines uh, to where, uh, you know, if, if either the person knew or authorities or someone knew, they, they, I saw one recently where it was at a college, unfortunately, and the college is still trying to deal with the repercussions because they, they were warned again and again and again about this person who eventually resulted in the death of a young woman. That The, the signs were clear that, that this person had a history of, of things and the, you know, the campus police were warned. Nothing happened. But you know, initially I thought, oh, background check on, on dating. But this, that, that would be something that is, certainly as a parent I'd appreciate Anybody who has a, a I was just going to say, you want to do it for your, anybody dating your daughter, <laughs> right? Yeah. Yeah, there, uh, 
I want to know everything. In fact, I want okay, to know so about what's that. The price, what do you think the price tag will be, though? It's going to be like a credit score. That's what I it, it can't be cheap. That's the thing. I mean, I it, hope it, it's it, cheap, it won't be cheap, but I'm but I'm. I'm In worried fact, that it wanted, will cost them a money to do. I want to know the credit score, too, of the person dating uh, my dad. I want to know that, too. So, uh, yeah, I, I think all that Fair. would be what would be. You'll, you got a few years, Sorkin, but the time will come. Yep. The time will come. Becky, you're probably right there. Time will come. We got to go. Uh, oh. I, I'm, we, we got music playing us out. Next on Squawk Pod, United Airlines ready for takeoff, CEO Scott Kirby on his cash runway, and the long-awaited return of travel demand. For us to be the first airline to get back to our core cash burn being positive, despite the fact that we're the largest business airline, is a really good indicator of where we're headed in the future. We'll be right back. Electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the fund's investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to Squawk Pod from CNBC. A full year after the markets tanked on fears of a global pandemic, things are looking up, particularly for airlines. Stocks this week have hit record highs led by that sector and by investors who are betting that travel demand is set to take off, pun intended. Now, those bets, they aren't just pipe dreams. The TSA reported screening over a million passengers in U.S. airports on Friday and Saturday. That's the highest levels in a year. Of course, this optimism struck some as ironic. Did we really have to bail out the airlines? Think about all the money that's chasing all of these different investment opportunities now. We need the airline industry. We need those employees. That discussion about bailouts in hindsight with Andrew and Joe is on yesterday's Squawk Pod. Please check it out. It shows how much road we've traveled. One year ago, when those bailouts were deemed the airline industry's only hope, United Airlines CEO Scott Kirby was pessimistic. Travel industry leaders were experiencing a crisis of existence. Now, this week, at a J.P. Morgan conference on industrial companies, Kirby was more positive. He said that United will halt its cash burn this month. After a year, the airline will stop losing money. Other airline CEOs, JetBlue, Southwest, American, and Delta, also revealed an improved sentiment, maybe even some optimism about consumers wanting to get back out there, vacation, take the kids to a theme park, visit friends and family. Now the other side of the coin, as prospects for the airlines pick up, so do concerns about corporate tax rates. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen has been working with international leaders to piece together a global minimum tax on multinational corporations, like airlines. She addressed evolving tax policy in an interview this past weekend. President Biden has put forward a number of proposals. He has proposed that corporations and wealthy individuals should pay more uh, in order to uh, meet the needs uh, of the economy, the spending we need to do. And um, over time, I expect that um, we will be putting forth proposals to get deficits under control. Now, after President Trump's sharp corporate tax cuts, the rate was trimmed to 21 percent. 
This new policy would prove troubling or turbulent for some CEOs. United Airlines CEO Scott Kirby joined Joe, Becky, and Andrew on Squawk Box this morning. CNBC's auto and airlines reporter Phil LeBeau kicked things off. Scott, we, we, we heard the reaction yesterday from not only you at the J.P. Morgan conference, but some of your colleagues as well. Demand is clearly back. Paint a picture in terms of how crowded the airports and airplanes are right now and what we're likely to see, let's say, two months from now. Yeah, well, Phil, uh, thanks for having me this morning. And it is nice that we've started to see an inflection in demand and the airports are more crowded than they were. Uh, though there's still a long ways to go. We, you know, revenue's down 60% still in aviation, and, and demand is still 50% lower than it was before. But we're clearly on the upswing. And as more and more people are getting vaccinated, uh, particularly leisure demand uh, is coming back and coming back at almost 100%. So that's coming back. International borders are still closed. So we have a ways to go on that. And my guess is business demand is still six to nine months from really hitting its inflection point and coming back. Uh, but it really is encouraging to see and feel like we turned the corner uh, and on are the ro- road to recovery now. Scott, you said uh, yesterday that you guys may have positive core cash generation this month. Now, some of your competitors may also be there as well, either this month or the next couple of months. Uh, how confident are you that that is sustainable, that this is not just that surge in March, but that you can build from here? Well, look, we're excited to be uh, the first airline to, to return to core, our core cash burn, getting back to positive here in March. And we do think that that's going to continue uh, going forward. And really, you know, this goes back a year, taking all the decisive action to deal with COVID allowed us to get back to core cash burn positive. Uh, going forward, it, you know, it's nice that we won't be talking, I hope, about cash burn and layoffs and those kinds of negatives. It is dependent on a continued recovery in COVID. And as long as we don't have an unknown uh, unknown or, uh, or even a known unknown uh, happen in the battle against COVID, I think it's pretty likely that that cash burn trajectory will continue to head up and to the right. Um, and really, but as long as there's not a setback, I think we're, we're on the road to recovery. Uh, and we can put those days of talking about cash burn and layoffs and things like that uh, largely in the rearview mirror. Scott, a lot of people seem to forget because I get this question from people and they don't seem to remember that you became CEO basically when this pandemic started. So you have not been a CEO of an airline during what we would consider normal business times. uh, But you've taken this last year in order to make a number of changes, ordering larger single aisle uh, airplanes. Some of those changes will filter through quicker than others. But when do you expect those to start hitting the bottom line? Well, look, we, I am really proud of what the team at United Airlines has been able to accomplish uh, getting through this. And, and really, you know, for us be, to be the first airline to get back to our core cash burn being positive, despite the fact that we're the largest business airline, which was decimated, the largest international airline in the U.S., the largest coastal gateways, is a really indi- good indicator of where we're headed in the future. And we had two th- big initiatives that were working pre-pandemic focus on really changing the customer experience and expanding our mid-continent hubs at United. Those were working before, and we are incredibly confident that they're going to work going forward. And so what's great now is as we've turned the corner on cash burn, uh, we can set our sights squarely on improving the customer experience, getting back uh, to to expanding those mid-continent hubs. And, you know, we've said, and I believe, that by 2023 we'll be back to the same EBITDA margins that we had in 2019. Uh, and we expect to be able to expand them beyond that. Scott, we know that international travel is dead in the water, not only for you guys, but really for the entire industry. But when it comes back, 
You said yesterday at J.P. Morgan, you think Europe comes back before Asia. Big part of Asia, obviously, is China. How worried are you about the China business, given your exposure over there, and how long it may take to come back? Well, that's a hard question to answer, really, because it depends on the politics and the science and when the governments decide. I do think Europe will come back first. Uh, they're closer to the United States in terms of where, they are, where they've been with COVID, where they are with vaccinations. Uh, a lot of great work going on in Israel in particular right now uh, to do studies on, you know, sort of more evidence that once you've been vaccinated, you can't get the disease asymptomatically, that you can't be a, a transfer. Um, and so at some point, I think we will likely start to open European borders, probably with some kind of vaccine passport that if you've had a vaccine, you're allowed into the country without a quarantine. Because the Asian countries uh, have not had the same level of cases, uh, mortality, and et cetera, that we've had here in the United States, and because, as a result, they're further behind on vaccinations, my guess is they will be more cautious uh, about opening. Um, and, you know, look, the good news is at United, we've been able to get the, back to core cash burn, even with international shutdown across the globe. Um, and Europe will be a huge tailwind for us, assuming it does open first. Uh, and then I think it'll you know, be a three, six, nine months later that, uh, that Asia starts to broadly open up. Hey, Scott, I I'm curious with now 12 months of perspective, how you look at the taxpayer um, funded, funded bailouts and frankly, whether they were ultimately needed and whether a private market solution uh, might have uh, been available. I ask because clearly your stock is now up about 300 percent from the lows. Most of the airline stocks uh, are, are up uh, and people the market is obviously hot, hot, hot. People are buying things, frankly, that aren't intending to make profits for, for, for many, many years uh, at this point. And how do you think taxpayers should think about all this? Well, look, I think the three rescue packages that went through for the economy were critical to avoiding a depression. And huge kudos to Congress uh, and the administration for what they have done uh, to get us through this. And while, look, the stock market is up now, and you know I watch CNBC every morning, and there's a lot of businesses that are going gangbusters. If you're selling home repair goods, if you're selling online, your business is, is through the roof. But there are a lot of us that are in worse than a depression. Um, anyone that is in the travel, entertainment, leisure, your local restaurants, and those industries have needed support. And they've needed not support for the long term, but they've needed a bridge to get through the crisis and to set themselves up for the recovery. Like an airline is a perfect example. We're a huge contributor to the local economies, but also to all the places where people go. Orlando is going to bounce back because of all the customers that airlines bring into Orlando that spend money at theme parks and hotels and restaurants. And keeping that infrastructure in place was really, and the people employed so that they could bounce back, to me, was really what these three bills have been about. And I'm a huge proponent of that. Uh, I recognize the concerns on the other side uh, that we've increased the deficit. But I agree with Secretary Yellen. Uh, this was the time where it would, was certainly better to buy us to go too big than not big enough uh, because the risks were so large. And we're now set up that as we get vaccinations widespread across the economy, all of us that have been on the sidelines, that have been in hibernation, are primed to come back at 100 percent and support even more robust economic growth uh, for the entire economy. Hey, Scott, uh, the FAA says that it's going to continue its policy of zero tolerance for unruly passengers. A lot of those uh, cases of unruly passengers have been people who didn't want to wear masks on the airlines. And I think there have been more than 500 cases just since December of passengers getting written up and taking off uh, of the planes because they refused to wear a mask. 
are the incidents on the rise? Are they tailing off? And what happens to the to the flight attendants who are on the front line who have to act as the bouncers? Well, look, 99.99% of our customers do the right thing, appreciate the mask policies, uh, and are doing the right thing for their, their fellow customers, their neighbors, and, and the employees. And I'm really proud of the employees of United Airlines, gate agents and flight attendants in particular, because they're the ones that are the tip of the sphere on this uh, of dealing with customers. And we've got a whole de-escalation protocol that we go through at United uh, to attempt to avoid making the situations complex. And ultimately, it results in a flight attendant handing a, a note, a card uh, that's been pre-written to a customer that says, essentially, last warning. Um, and if you don't wear the mask, you'll be banned from flying United until the mask policy is removed. And we've had about, I think, about 1,000 uh, customers uh, that we have ultimately uh, wow. temporarily banned from flying United in the past year. Uh, but given the numbers we carry, you know, that's a relatively small number. But our flight attendants have done uh, an amazing job of dealing with what can be a tough situation uh, at times and, and avoiding escalating the problem. I think it's getting less and less, you know, the societal um, acceptance of masks and of doing the right thing is much higher. At least that's my anecdotal view. And, uh, and so we have fewer of the kind of incidents on, on airplanes. Not zero, but, but far fewer. Scott, one last question. Uh, a couple of months ago, you guys invested in Archer, which is an eVTOL startup in California, essentially looking at urban uh, air mobility, where people theoretically in the future will be able to go from, let's say, Burbank down to LAX in uh, this uh, vertical takeoff and landing aircraft and then transition to a United flight. How far away are we from seeing that become a reality? Uh, because it sounds great conceptually right now, but when you looked at making this investment and when you look at that business opportunity, how far before we might see that actually happen? Well, look, we've been excited. Uh, once we got, once we viewed that we could see the light at the end of the tunnel to get back to making investments in, in all kinds of new technology, whether sustainable fuel sequestration, and eVTOL is another one of those. And we tried to pick who we thought was the best partner on the technology that they're developing. Uh, you know, the current plan is 2024. Um, I'm not sure if it'll be 2024 or 2025. Uh, but I do think that the companies that are developing, and we picked Archer as our partner, this technology are going to be the ones to make really change a big part of the infrastructure around uh, transportation and the kinds of examples you talked about, Burbank to L.A., those are examples of replacing helicopter service, but they're better for the environment, they're quieter, um, much more convenient, higher safety, I expect, when it's all through. Uh, so we were really excited to be able to partner with Archer in this, uh, and really it's about their technology development. And even going beyond kind of the, what the near-term thing is, the Burbank to L.A. example that you used, uh, and where can this technology take us even farther in the future? Scott Kirby, CEO of United Airlines, joining us from the United Club at DFW down in Dallas. Scott, thank you very much. Joe, I'll send it back to you. You heard Scott mention their mid-continent hub strategy, filtering more flights, banking more flights through uh, hubs like Denver. And I know you're familiar with Denver, Joe. Go through Denver sometime. I did a couple of weeks ago. Wow, night and day compared to other airports around the country. I mean, it is crowded. You don't want putting four or 500 people on a plane and then, and then taking them off, Phil. Uh, I think we've learned that. And the hub, the hub model is better. It just, I think it is. It, you you got to do it that way, don't you think? I think we've learned that. It took a while. Yeah, I, don't know if I, I think so. 
I don't know if Airbus. Point to point it. still works. Point to point works. Look, you, there are plenty of airlines that have made it work China. and still yeah. make it work. But right. but for clearly for United, the the midcontinent hub is the strategy. Yep. All right. Thanks, Phil. I'm taking screenshots of you, Joe, and selling them by the dozen. Actually, right now, just I've attached some in, 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 you know non fungible token to it, and we're doing quite that's well an, over that's, here. So that's an idea. If we get the three shot with Becky, then it's a more valuable valuable screenshot. So we that's right. Keep, we had that you know, one. They no, look I just like the was saying, I like your shirt, Joe. That's stepping out. You usually wear a plain shirt, but I like the polka dots or whatever it is. Checks. I told you why you'd be. Uh, it's it's a it's a yeah. I need because the other shirts were all dirty. No, because they're more tapered, and I was out last. I don't know. I, I hit. I'm hitting. I'm breaking through all resistance. I'm breaking through all resistance. I don't want to hurt Take the Mac with like, Move on. You've seen those buttons go ping like that. Oh, you know that 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 could happen. If I'm not. But uh, hold on. Are you wearing the Lulus though? The Lululemon pants. I am. And uh, because they're so they're, flexible, they're not quite as comfortable as they usually no. are. No, they're fine. They're good. I'm good. I'm, I'm going down. It's starting today. Going down. Okay. Uh, big day. Well, we should. Yeah. Okay. NFT mania has swept the art world. Sotheby's CEO on swapping brush strokes for pixels and why he's getting in on the action or auction. Charles Stewart. There's been a pivot towards digital in almost everything, perhaps except the art. And now we're getting there with the art as well. That's next on Squawk Pod. When you visit a state as big and diverse as Texas, there are a million different trips you can take. Let's say you've got an appetite for whitewater kayaking. You can get your own. So this is why they call it Devil's River. Trip to Texas. Or maybe you have an actual appetite. I'll take a pound of brisket, six ribs, uh, three links of sausage, and a, a piece of pecan pie. Trip to Texas. Go to TravelTexas.com slash get your own for the only trip to Texas that matters. Yours. The most exciting part of a vacation stay at a home rental? Easy. It's being greeted upon arrival with a rusted lockbox affixed to the underside of a stranger's condo. Yeah, you simply twist knobs, click gears, jiggle it, and then rip it off its moorings, and voila! Your prize is a key to a questionable home rental and maybe tetanus. When you just want to get your vacation started by actually getting into your room... It matters where you stay. At Hilton, we deliver your key right to your phone on the Hilton Honors app. Hilton for the stay. You're listening to Squawk Pod. Good morning and welcome back to Squawk Box right here on CNBC. I'm Andrew Sorkin along with Becky Quick and Joe Kernan. Joe? NFTs uh, disrupting the art world. Last week's Beeple auction setting records selling for $69 million dollars. It may be just the beginning. Joining us now to talk about the digital art revolution and share some of the uh, news of his own. It's the CEO of Sotheby's, Charles Stewart. We just said uh, the beginning. In fact, Charles, I guess you'd make the argument that this is not completely new in, in the art world for a while now has, has been transformed by digital innovation. The art itself is now going uh, digital. But this is a few years. I guess now we're all getting up to speed on it, but it's not completely new. It's just headlines now. That's exactly right. Uh, the NFTs as an art form, and certainly digital art, have been around for years and years, decades uh, even. And NFTs themselves and some of the platforms that um, that trade them have also been around for a few years. Obviously, they've come in a major way into our collective consciousness over the last couple of months. 
Partly that's linked to the rise of, um, of crypto values, but I think it really goes beyond that as well. Charles Z, you make the point that, and, it, and there's a lot of obviously, it, this, it's not totally generational, but there are a lot of young people that aren't interested uh, in physical ownership, but something you call borderless ownership. And I figured it out actually thinking about Andrew's Michael Jordan baseball card. Do you need a, a card with frayed edges up in the attic sitting in a box? Or would it be better to have that a digital ownership? There's no reason why that card, if it's a limited edition, needs to be just sitting somewhere. So I guess you, once you get past that, you understand that, that it's not just all about just holding something in your hand. You know, to me, that's one of the major uh, things that's really come out of um, the last, you know, 12 to 18 months is this acceleration in, in everything digital. It's kind of an obvious statement, but exactly as you say in the art world, there's been a pivot towards digital in almost everything, perhaps except the art. And now we're getting there with the art as well. And on an unrelated note, I'd like to talk to you after, after the show about that card of yours. Uh, yeah, uh, about Andrews. Yeah, uh, I want. I saw uh, an Oscar Robertson one that I would like to own, where he's about eight feet off the ground with his legs, and he's got the you know he's a rebound. And I would pay to have to own that uh, that NFT. It's uh, I'm from Cincinnati, but it's amazing. So you've got some uh, some interesting developments with with a digital artist, which is who's anonymous. We're not even sure whether artists, whether it's one person or not, or, or it could be a group of, of digital engineers. But what does that have to do with Sotheby's? Can you go into the news? that? Well, that, uh, absolutely. Ahead, I mean, this, we're, we're really excited. We, we've been following the NFT space for some time, and we're excited this morning to be announcing uh, an upcoming sale next month with an artist who is known as PAC. Um, and uh, this is an artist who's been producing digital art for decades, actually. And, you know, we're very excited to bring their work to market. As you say, the artist prefers to remain anonymous, in part because the artist wants it to be about the art, which is not necessarily a new thing in the art world. But it's one of the many new things about crypto art in particular that I think is uh, different and potentially a bit disruptive, certainly when you compare it to the traditional, uh, the traditional art world. And tell us, is this the beginning of uh, of you doing this a lot? That how, how many digital artists are you going to take into the into your stable? Would would you, the it's, I, you know it's 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 really it's still very early. Needless to say, with with crypto uh, art in general, and this is you know new for all of us. But there's a lot here that's really exciting, exciting, and we think has staying power. So we wanted our first sale, you know, as a market leader, to be with one of the most established artists, which is why we've. Uh, chosen to collaborate with PAC here. And we're going to be selling both one-of-one one, um, uh, works of art, but also uh, open what are called open editions in the NFT world, where many people can buy tokens for the same work. And there'll be some other surprises along the way over the next few weeks that I won't, uh, I won't go into detail on here. Um, but I do think this is the start of something that you'll see more frequently. And, you know, one of the interesting things about NFTs is, um, you know, Beyond the fact that you're, you've got a new audience and a new aesthetic, which is always a great thing uh, in the art world, um, this really has the potential to bypass a lot of the traditional uh, gatekeepers and vetting processes of the of the physical art world. That's something that's really exciting, and as it develops, you know, we're we're very curious to see you know where that takes all of us. So here's the thing I'm trying to figure out because there's sort of this this artificial scarcity that's created. With, with an NFT, right? I mean, 
you know, uh, a, a photographer can 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 number, uh, you know, one through 100 and you think that there's 100 prints of this and then they could go make posters of it separately. But everybody thinks that's either OK, because those hundred are more valuable. Do you do you think that you're going to start seeing artists attach, you know, NFTs effectively to the first 25 or I don't know, first or just to 500 tell you it's 500. And then the question, of course, is what happens if they want to reissue the art or issue more of the art? How is that going to change the dynamic over time? I think these are the things that a lot of people are trying to grapple with in their head. You know, you're, you're exactly right, Andrew. And I think that that whole scarcity versus abundance continuum is a debate that's existed in the physical art world as well, as you say, with photographs, with editions of work. Um, and so in, in some sense, it's not new. But here, because the digital copies are literally, you know, indistinguishable um, and also because it's controllable, um, you know, that's something that, you know, artists will have to choose for themselves, which model they're going for. As I said, you'll see in our upcoming sale um, some one of one um, uh, works which are not uh, replicable or won't be replicable, but also open editions where, you know, many copies of the same thing will be sold. It'll be interesting to see the difference in values and how collectors, you know, think about those things. But that that topic of scarcity versus abundance um, is is one that is you know routinely and widely discussed, and over time, if this market's going to develop, um, it's it's something that artists will have to get right in order to you know to to for values to increase and to engage their audiences in the right way. Charles, what's the last year been like? I, I can't imagine you need to be there physically at, at an auction, and and the pandemic, which you know has the Fed on full bore. We're going to see Jay Powell today. That's usually pretty good for. Uh, for collectibles, if, if if money's sloshing around, has it been a great year? Has it been a challenging year? What what have been the issues? Yeah, there, there's no doubt it's been it's been a challenging year. Our top line is you know down um, you know mid mid single digits, which actually is is a pretty great outcome um, in financial terms. But what's actually been interesting is we've been able to reach and engage a much broader audience with all the digital first tools. We're seeing millions of people now routinely watch our auctions in the digital first format, whereas pre-pandemic you would have had a you know a few hundred people at most you know in the auction room. So that's really exciting to be able to engage you know different and larger uh, audiences. We have seen a lot of engagement, and to your point on values, um, you know maybe it's not surprising given everything going on, but um, whether it's art categories where we where we are routinely seeing records set for uh, for artists. Uh, or in our luxury categories, uh, you know, you mentioned trading cards, but watches, handbags, uh, wine and spirits, um, you know, design furniture. I mean, the, these categories have been absolutely, um, you know, ripping over the last 12 months. And probably no surprise, you know, for us, about a third of our global bidders um, come from Asia and a large percentage of those from greater China. And with the relative strength in the Far East, um, you know, that's been a very noticeable uh, trend that supports these global markets, too. So, Charles, the, the we were going to get a, a, a big screen TV. And one of the options from these smart guys at I don't know, the Geek Squad was you can have a resting TV that 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 you can lo- download art onto your resting TV. And I was just we, we were showing some of the NFTs behind you that some of them were were amazing. Is that the future or, or am I going to like get motion sickness when I walk into someone's uh, you know, room that's showing you know, three or four 
live art pieces that, are, that are, have NFTs moving around? Do you foresee that someday? Well, my, my son told me that, you know, physical walls are so, uh, are so 2019. And I do think there's an element, you know, we had a lot of debate about NFTs and digital ownership. Uh, but there's no doubt that people are comfortable owning things on screens and people's TVs, you know, already, but certainly in the future can, um, you know, can reflect those images. There's lots of examples of, of collectors who do that. Um, you know, I, that said, I don't, just to be clear, I don't think this is going to completely replace the physical art world. Okay. What's probably most exciting about NFTs for me is that it's it's a new aesthetic. It's, it's a very new and very engaged audience, but um, it doesn't necessarily have to, um, you know, somehow replace or, you know, um, uh, it, it, it just can exist alongside the physical art world in a really interesting way. And of course, there's, you know, people carry digital images of their physical art and people will probably end up printing out physical images of their digital art too. So, you know, there's a lot to come here, but, you know, NFTs, I think, you know, aside from the fact it's a new aesthetic and a new audience, um, you know, the message is the, is the medium here. And um, there's just so much power in this blockchain um, and, you know, co-creator, creator co-economics and all kinds of things that have the power to challenge and disrupt the traditional art market, which is really exciting. Yeah. I mean, great art. If you ever, any museum, you can stare at a, at a motionless piece for a half hour and see things totally differently while you're doing it. But you know these millennials, it's all got to be experiential and moving around. And woo, you know, it, so it's, you know, hey, that, that's what we're seeing here. You can't go and look at a, a beautiful, uh, you know, Monet or Dolly or something like that. It's, it's just not, move, not moving enough. Not, not enough experience there for me. <laughs> no, uh, I'm kidding. Uh, I think it's cool. And um, it's not going back. The genie's not going back in the bottle. I don't think to eat. no matter how much people say it's like the the current pets.com phenomenon. I, I'm not sure it is. Are you this? This stuff has value and is here to stay. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to opine on. You know, it's, it's very early. You know, the values have been have caught everyone by surprise. That's for sure. Um, but we think that, you know, as it develops and matures, that there is, you know, real, real staying power. Like you said, you know, you don't see these things. Um, you know, go backwards necessarily. What remains right. to be seen is, you know, the, the model that springs up around it. How big is the ecosystem? Is it something that's kind of front and center for us in a few years? Um, or, you know, is it just something that, that is developed, but in a, you know, in its own capacity, sort of alongside the physical art market? You know, all that remains to be seen. And, you know, I know you know this, but needless to say, NFTs have a lot of applicability, you know, outside, you know, specifically the art market. You know, we're obviously seeing yeah. this, in the form of, um, you know, uh, collectibles, cards, yep. and, you know, eventually music and other right. categories too. So right. a, lot, a lot to monitor here, that's for sure. Right. Blockchain, you're right. All right, Charles, thanks. Thank you. Uh, it, it's, it's Sotheby's, uh, is, that, is that a good pronounce, pronouncer for you? I, I wouldn't expect any different from you. So, Sotheby's, uh, all right, thank you. And we hope to see you again soon, Charles. All right, we'll see. Thank Charles you very Stewart. much, bye. Great, great CEO name for Sotheby's, I think. Uh, that, you know what I mean? He knows you well. That's Squawk Pod for today. Thanks for listening. Squawk Box is hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin. Tune in weekday mornings on CNBC at 6 Eastern. Subscribe to Squawk Pod wherever you get your podcasts. If you're already subscribed, thank you. Please leave a rating or a review on Stitcher or on Apple Podcasts. And find us on Twitter at Squawk CNBC. Send us your ideas. Joe, what would you like your title to be? Joe, what do they call you on Twitter? Oh, man. We, yeah, we can't use those. Uh... 
We'll meet you back here tomorrow. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools.